Hey guys, welcome back to the All Bodies Nutrition Podcast. This is your host, Eleni, and as always, I am so grateful to have you here with me today. Today, I am joined by um, an amazing anti-diet dietitian, and I'm really excited to have her. We're going to talk about some really cool topics, Um, but before we get into it, I just wanted to place a trigger warning. Um, if you are someone who is currently struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder and hear, and hearing about these topics may be um, difficult for you and you don't feel that you're ready to listen to them, I would definitely recommend pausing this episode and coming back at another time. But if you feel that this is for you and you can listen to it and gain some knowledge from it, then please stay and join us. So Leslie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so excited um, to have you on as well. And I'm always so grateful to make like friends through the internet and find people across the country and the world that have like similar mindsets and similar messaging. And it's really helps me feel like I'm not the only one like in this fight towards like getting rid of this ridiculous diet culture situation. I know. I agree. I think that it can be so hard, especially like working from home and you feel like a little isolated and is sometimes as much as I hate the internet and I'm like, okay, I need to stay off social media. It can also be so great to like bring people together. So I agree. And also I find, so I'm in New York and you are in Kentucky. So we're in like completely different types of um, locations. And what I find in a lot of my followers or clients that live in other parts of the country that may not have is like easy access to like nutrition help or eating disorder help or disordered eating assistance, um, because there may not be that availability because of the location. I find that like being able to connect with someone virtually is super helpful for people. I don't know if you found that as well. And I'm not sure, you know, how prevalent your position is in like the area that you live in. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, um, especially going, you know, we were talking right before and I was telling you I lived out in California for a few years and it's always a really big culture shock for me to come back to Kentucky and especially, you know, all of these like quote wellness things that are so like, again, quote necessary. And it's like, no, and this is going off on a whole nother rant that I'd love to talk about another day, but it's just like, there's just, I think a really big divide in what like wellness is. And if we could really just say like, you know, people don't have access to these things. What would it be like for them to just have more access to like food in general? So that's a whole nother topic, but yes, I agree with you. I think it's very interesting. There's a very big divide I find. That's definitely such an important part of like even having access to intuitive eating and being able to have a variety of food and fresh fruits or even frozen fruits and vegetables available. Um, I know in New York, I mean, I would, I would believe that access is pretty available. However, there are parts of the state, just like everywhere else that are like food deserts where all you have are like little bodegas and like little markets and, you know, fast food. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but if someone wants to go into a store and go food shopping and buy, you know, let's say broccoli, they may not even have fresh broccoli. They may not even have frozen broccoli. And so not being able to have access is such a huge, like, 
I can't even think of the word like a barrier towards even being able to, you know, pursue that. So I think that that's really interesting. And it's definitely something that may not be as well discussed as it should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that within this kind of anti-diet space, kind of recognizing that privilege as well of having the access, um, just something I am continuously trying to learn and really tailor my message as well around, um, just because it's not something I have had to deal with before. So I try to continuously show up in a different way as well, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's, it's important for us to always kind of take a step back and look outside of ourselves and what our little bubble is like, like where I live in Long Island, New York, which is like the suburbs of New York. Like it's, like a relatively nice neighborhood. I have like gourmet delis where I can like have like pre-made like healthy food, quote unquote, you know, not like, you know, as if I cooked it at home, but available at a premium price, but it's still available. Um, And so if I want to go and get like fresh broccoli, I can go into any of like the three or four grocery stores in my town and I would be able to find it. And so even being able to do simple things like that, we take for granted or, you know, I've taken for granted, but it's always important to recognize that not everyone has that. So that's definitely a big part of the conversation. So I think it's good that we try to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I thought that, you know, so obviously Leslie and I spoke prior to us getting on this recording. Um, and so there's a couple of topics from, by the way, guys, all of her information will be in the description box with her like website, her social media handles, her email and things like that. So I just wanted to preface that she has some really amazing, um, posts. So definitely go and give her a follow and check her out. Um, but she did a post like a week or so ago, and she said, we're born as intuitive eaters. I'm speaking about you as if you're not here with me. We're (laughs) we're here virtually, but like I'm speaking to the people who are listening. So you posted, we're born as intuitive eaters, but along the way, many of us turn to external cues that dictate how to eat. And then you talk about how people are so used to like counting calories or macros or whatever. And like, you're so out of tune with what your body is able to tell you and things like that. So I think first, like what inspired you to make this post, which I think is super, super important, probably one of the most important things when you first consider intuitive eating or you're in a disordered eating space and you're trying to like figure out how to get out of it. Um, I would love to hear like what your thought process behind that was. Yeah. Well, I, I always think it's really interesting and this is kind of one of the first conversations I typically have with my clients of like, let's go back to the beginning. Like what were some of those triggers for you that started this eating disorder or disordered eating? Um, and it's interesting because, you know, for some of them, I think it's around the teen years when it's puberty and body image, et cetera. For some of them, it goes really far back um, with childhood trauma and things like that. And so I just think it's always really important to kind of get to the root of like, where did this start? And where did we start hearing these external messages? And I know for me personally, a big part of my journey was whenever I went to college, um, I, and I just want to preface this with, I am in a smaller framed 
privileged body. Um, but when I went to college, I think that's where my kind of disordered relationship with food began. It was a lot of restricting during the week and then not necessarily quote, uh, binges on the weekend, but definitely binge type eating around foods that I deemed as like bad in my eyes. Um, you know, using like my fitness pal tracking calories and to be completely honest, that is what drew me to dietetics to begin with, because I thought, oh, what a great way to like learn more about these foods. And, um, I never really knew exactly what it was that I wanted to do with my degree. And the more and more I, you know, went through my rotations and did start to see clients and started just becoming more aware of these messages and how they affect people, um, that's when I grew really passionate about working with clients with eating disorders and disordered eating. And I just think it's always really interesting to say like, where did those first messages begin that told you, you weren't enough, or this food is quote, not good for you, or you can only have certain foods on at certain times. And so really kind of getting a rein on that. And then what I always say is one of the coolest parts about recovery is when you get to this place where, you know, you, you have increased your, um, intake and you're starting to feel more nourished and you get to actually explore what foods you like again. Like I tell my clients, if you're struggling with tracking calories, track the taste of things, the texture of things, because you get to like re-explore your palate because for so long you've lived in this box and had these rules that like, no, I can't eat this, or I don't like this. And guess what? You might not like that food, but you get to show up and make that decision for yourself without these like diet culture rules. So I just think it's always really interesting to kind of have that conversation with them. Like what was life like for you? What did you enjoy before these rules came into your life? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting thing. And for some people, they may not even realize that they may think that they don't like things because they somehow along the lines told were told that that it wasn't a good food, um, you know, a quote unquote good food, or they associated it negative negatively like, oh, like that has a lot of carbs and carbs make you fat. Um, you know, those types of thinking. And then they kind of like evolved into thinking like, oh, I don't like rice or something like that. And so when you're like, oh, well, why don't you try and expand like your, you know, meal balance and let's try if like, do you want to add like sweet potatoes or rice or something? And, you know, some of like, I've had clients say like, oh no, I don't like that. And I'm like, well, when was the last time you had it? Um, I'm not sure. And then like, they'll try it and they'll say, oh my God, this is actually really good. And so, you know, and then they come to the realization like, wow, like, I don't remember even why I said I didn't like it. It was, you know, the mind is such an interesting thing and what, how, how deep rooted diet culture is for most people has like really infiltrated all of their like secondary thinking processes. That's not even a word, but you know, I hope you guys we're recording this at like nine o'clock at night in, in New York. So I'm like a little tired, but I apologize. Um, but I know for me, like I was put on, I, I was actively trying to lose weight from, from eight years old. So like, it's essentially for as long as I could remember, 
I knew that there was, I was told that something was wrong with me and I was like Mm -hmm. limited to like what I was allowed to eat. And like, my sister was allowed to have more than me because she was smaller. And like, that was when like all of my food beliefs kind of were formed. And so it's always interesting where like for you, when you went to college, that's when you felt that your disordered eating kind of really came out and, you know, ruled your life, so to speak. And even though you weren't like, you know, avoiding eating food altogether or had a full-blown eating disorder, that's still a disordered way of living. And I think it's also important because there are people out there, especially in this space who say like, well, it's not a big deal to like track your calories or your macros or know what, what you're putting into your body. Like, what would you say to someone who says that? Yeah, I would really want to encourage them to say like, what is that taking away from you though? Because whenever, again, we're, if we're counting calories, you know, our body has different needs every single day. We have hormones, we have stress. We, we do move our bodies. Um, we have good sleep or bad sleep some nights. And so every single day, your body has different needs. So if you wake up every morning and say, well, here's my X amount of calories for the day, you're not honoring your hunger and fullness. And you're continuing to, again, live inside that box of like, this diet culture mindset. And I always just think too, like, you know, if you're out to eat with friends, how does it feel if you've hit that quote, like number for the day and you feel like you can't enjoy yourself. And if you do, you feel this sense of guilt around it. And it's like, what would it just be like to show up to that with being able to engage in conversation and really be present with them and order what you actually want on the menu. It's going to actually taste good for you instead of saying, Oh, well, sorry, you know, I, I already had my calories for the day. So I always just kind of ask people like, but what is it taking away? Cause I hear within, you know, I ha- try to have so much compassion because eating disorder voices can be really strong and they can convince you, no, this is good. And so I try to just be like, okay, sure. You think it's good. I hear you in that. And let's look at it a different way too. Yeah. And, and the scary part is, and something that, that you mentioned before, when you were saying how, like you were in this disordered like mindset and like, that's what drove you to dietetics, which I have heard a many, many times. And I remember when I was in like my nutrition bachelor's and my internship, because I had some experience with eating disorders because of like my volunteer work and rotations, I noticed so many of my peers having and having eating disorders and being, and it being masked as wellness. So these girls who were just naturally in thin bodies who liked to work out and would come in with like their carrot sticks and their hummus and like, you know, eating their like lettuce wrapped sandwiches you know, everything just appeared so healthy and, you know, what you would like, quote unquote, dictate, like, see what the society dictates is like healthy Mm -hmm. in these girls, but they were so disordered that they didn't even realize how disordered it was. And like, before I opened up my practice, I used to work in a clinical setting and we would take interns. And like, I can't tell you how many interns came in that had for sure had eating disorders because we would spend six weeks with them. So that's like long enough to, 
you know, we ate lunch together and stuff like that. And there was just this one girl that I remember very distinctly. And when she left, I like the first day I was like, there's something off with her. Like the way that she, she's very like distinct with the timing of when she eats, like she would eat like the same exact time every single day, the same exact thing. And it was like, a little baggie of almonds at like 11 and then when we would have lunch at one she would just have lettuce just lettuce and tomato nothing else on it and like we had like we would always have everyone try like the anchors and like the thickened liquids because it's like part of like you know in a clinical setting like you give patients that have issues like swallowing and things like that thick and liquids and she started crying because she didn't want to drink the ensure it was so sad and so when she like had left I was like guys like she has an eating disorder they're like really I was like and I explained the signs of like all the things that I noticed and it's just scary because these are the individuals that are like supposed to be educating people and notice when people have disordered eating habits and how can you notice it if you yourself are so you know entrenched in that kind of thinking yeah it's so interesting and I don't know you know I don't really keep up to date with what they're teaching now nutrition classes um and this I was in school eight nine years ago at this point so I I hope it's changed yeah. But I mean, I do know in my nutrition classes, we were learning about counting calories and how do you work with clients who want to lose weight? And mm-hmm. I did not have a single class on eating disorders or disordered eating. Similar to what you said earlier, it was more of going out and doing my own research and being in the field and really taking that on myself. So it is very interesting. And I, I hope things have shifted from that, but I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. And it's crazy because in, even in clinical settings, so like in like a hospital setting, like if, if you're doing your like nutrition assessment and you have someone's height and weight and their BMI is within a certain range and you're charting, you have to chart in a certain way. Like you have to, you know, acknowledge like when you're estimating their needs, like based on like what is expected based on protocol and it's not like it's like your own practice where you can chart how you want to, like you have to chart by like the hospital's policy. And then there's like, you know, like, I guess like state agencies that come in and like review things and stuff like that. So it's like, even if someone comes in and they're like considered obese and are have, is having a lot of like inflammation and trauma and they're really sick, like you still have to estimate their needs to technically be for weight loss, even though that's not what they should be like focusing on, especially when it comes to like tube feeding and things like that, which I remember I used to get into a lot of fights with the doctors over things like that. Cause they're they're like, Oh, well she could stand to lose a few pounds. Like this is how fat phobic of, uh, you know, healthcare system we have, which I'm sure you, uh, can attest to. So it's just crazy. It is. I know I always really feel for my clients and try to get them, which it's hard. It's really intimidating to walk into a medical office and to advocate for yourself. Something even I feel intimidated to do sometimes. So I try to get them to, I say, you know, they don't have to have your weight. You can, or ask for a blind weight, et cetera. And it's really interesting to hear, you know, some remarks that are made to them in regards to weight or what they're eating or even, you know, kind of going off on a different topic here, but like atypical anorexia, I'm like, 
why? Because yeah. it's not atypical. And so why are we putting that continues to, I think, put this label of like, you don't fit in this, what yeah. we picture as anorexic. And so that's a whole nother topic. But again, it's like, it's in this medical community and it can be really hard to advocate for yourself and it can be very invalidating. Oh, a hundred percent. And it just makes no sense because for like, for me, when I was struggling with disordered eating, I was losing weight because I was told that, you know, that was what would help my PCOS. And I had like a whole long story. There's a whole episode guys. If you haven't already heard it, I'll link it down below, but I didn't even recognize this is before I was a dietitian, but I didn't even recognize that I was suffering from disordered eating and binging. And I didn't think that I thought that that was okay, that, that it was happening because I like wasn't strong enough or, you know, I wasn't focused enough or I was letting myself go or whatever. And like, I deserved to have what I was going through acknowledged. And I didn't even realize that that's what I was going through and through pursuing intentional weight loss and it happening so quickly, like I developed disordered eating slash an eating disorder. Like it wasn't always binges, but like there were times where I remember like going to the store, buying food, eating it in my car and then throwing it out in the parking lot because like I, I never binged in front of anyone else. And so, you know, recognizing at how far gone I had had you know, kinds of traveled from like my body's like natural ability to like, tell me how I was feeling. I didn't know how to do that because like I said, from like seven or eight years old, I was already aware that I was in a larger size body and like, that was a problem. So I had to shrink my body and that was like always encouraged and it just continued and continued. And, And the harder that I was pushed to lose weight, the more weight I ended up gaining. So it's so interesting how like when you're, you know, at a certain age, like, first of all, when someone's eight, nine, 10, when it's, a, you know, like a child, like your body's smart, it's putting on fat so that it can have energy storage so that you can grow and develop and, you know, your body can do all those wonderful things. But if, you know, someone is not in a typical body and I'm not talking about like I was obese or anything like that, I was just like a chunky kid. Um, you know, I didn't have anything wrong with my labs or anything like that. I was completely like fine. Um, but just like my weight was creeping up and they saw how thin my sister was. So I was like, compared to my sister, who's like five, five inches shorter than me or six inches shorter than me. And like, just like in a completely different body, you know, it, I had no idea how to listen to my body. So for those of you who who are listening now, who, maybe on the fence about pursuing intuitive eating or trying to heal your relationship with food. Just know that like, if you are not able to even listen to your body, it's not your fault. Like it's something that has been conditioned for so long. And so in that post that you put, I thought that it was really important that like we're born unless if you have like a really, really rare, like genetic or neurological disorder, (laughs) your Mm -hmm. body knows what to do and when to tell you to eat one to tell you not, you know, you're full and you're good and you're satisfied. And so, um, what are some of the signs that you think people could look for when trying to get into a place where they could start to re-listen to their body? Yeah. Well, I think I want to 
something you said earlier that really stood out to me was you said like the mind is so powerful. And I just wanted to touch on that for a minute because I think that that's something within eating disorder recovery. I always say the hardest part of recovery is switching your thoughts. And you said something like since eight years old, I've been told that I need to lose weight. And I just think it's so interesting that, you know, I think within eating disorder recovery, a lot of people are really hard on themselves and they don't have patience with themselves. And I'm like, you've been told this literally for years and it's not your fault that you've been told this. And so I don't know. I just wanted to point that out because I just thought it was really interesting talking about how the mind shows up within, um, within like in many of my clients who have a similar story or a similar situation, like it wasn't like they just started dieting when they were like 30, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, you know, for some people that may be the case where like you were always naturally in a thin body and then like you had children and then your hormones change and your body change and then your life changed and you may have started to gain weight and then you started to say, okay, I got to get this weight off. And then that's how your disordered relationship with food began. But for most people I find, um, it starts way, way sooner. And so for those individuals like myself, like I didn't even, once I found intuitive eating, it was kind of like, I found it. I didn't know what it was. Like, I didn't know that it was the thing until like, I learned it in school, but it was kind of like, that's how I started to heal my relationship with food, where I was like, I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just trying to like eat what makes me feel good. What balances my blood sugars because I have PCOS polycystic ovary syndrome. So, you know, I'm always mindful of that. So like, as long as I'm doing those things, like my body's going to do what it's supposed to do. Like it's going to be smart and it knows what to do, but it took me a really long time to get to that place. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have like anyone explaining like, it's okay. Like it was always like, Oh, like, are you, what's your goal weight? And like all these other nonsense things. And I think people now know to like, leave me alone, but, um, (laughs) but you know, it's something that you carry with you. And, and even when you are in recovery or you have mostly recovered, cause I feel like people expect like you get to this place and you're just fine. Like things creep back up and you sometimes experience certain situations. Like right now I feel a little under the weather and like, I have like zero energy to lift in the gym. So I just haven't gone. And like, I've been needing to eat more food. Like, I don't necessarily feel more hungry, but I feel like I need something like my body's like fighting off. And like, part of me was like, but like, why do I need to eat more right now? Like I usually eat this for lunch. Cause I'm like, I don't know. I'm like always like on a schedule. So like in between clients, like I only have a certain amount of time to eat. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But you know, lately I noticed this week I needed more food and there's was like a little voice in my head that was like, like, do you really need more food? And then I was like, no, I need more food. It's okay. But like, you kind of have to like talk yourself through it. So even if you're in a place where you're intuitively eating and things like that, like those thoughts still can creep back up. I agree. I think it's so interesting. I think those thoughts can continue to creep in for years because again, it's a message we've been told for years and it's a message we continue to see in the media. Like, I feel like even within, I have a very tailored of like who I follow and what I'm looking at. And sometimes I feel like I'm in my own little bubble because I see something outside of it. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, people still talk about this. People still do this. Like, I think I saw a commercial the other day for, um, I don't know, like those shakes. I don't even know what they're called, 
but I, it's like from the nineties, I swear. And I was like, Oh my wait, goodness. Wait, is this people still do that. Thing? Like people drink these three times a day, like as their meals. It's just so interesting. Um, but kind of going back to how you can work towards intuitive eating. I think it can be a hard space to be in because I think I did a post on this actually last week about this, like pendulum of food freedom of going from like binging to restricting and then kind of finding this happy medium with intuitive eating kind of settled in the middle. And, you know, I'm sure it's something you see all the time too. People are like, Oh, if I gave myself permission to eat whatever I want, I would eat chocolate all day long. And what I say back to them is okay, eat the chocolate all day long, because you do that one day, you do that two days. And eventually you're not going to want it all day long. Correct. But you have restricted something for so long. And that's just an example. You've restricted from something for so long that now you're having this like over craving for it. It's just like a child when you say yeah. you can't have something and your body is like throwing this tantrum, craving it, craving it. And so I'm like, okay, have it then have it as much as you want it. And then see how long that lasts because I can 99% of the time guarantee you it's not what you're going to want all day long. And then you can start to introduce kind of that gentle nutrition, just like you were saying earlier, you said I have PCOS. And so I do kind of have this awareness of what makes me feel good. Um, so I think it's just really interesting, but I think if you're also someone, you know, very in the depths of your eating disorder right now, um, I, a hope you are working with a professional and B, I think that it can be challenging too, because, you know, within our field and within eating disorders, sometimes to get you back to this place of nourishment, a kind of lightly structured meal plan might be provided by a dietitian, And that can seem challenging whenever you're saying like, well, but I'm not hungry, uh, three times a day and for a couple of snacks. And so if you're telling me to intuitively eat, like that's not intuitively eating. And I think it's important to remember whenever you're really in the depths of that eating disorder, your hunger and fullness cues aren't quite in touch with your body. And so you kind of have to like get that metabolism going again, tell your body, Hey, it's normal to eat a few times a day, every couple of hours, whatever it may be. And so it can be, it can be a hard space to work towards. It can seem kind of challenging at first. And those cases are, you know, for, for me personally, I deal with them on a case by case, you know, basis and everyone is in a different place. Um, so it's much more complex than just like, you know, the basic average person who's just in disordered eating. Um, but we're talking about like individuals who are been really suffering with an eating disorder for a long period of time and, you know, are at a place where physically they are in a dangerous place, so to speak, Mm -hmm. you know, there's like a lot of things that could go wrong and stuff like that. So for those individuals, definitely a meal pattern, um, with times that we determine ahead of time till, you know, because at that point you're right. Like they, you don't have those hunger cues at all. Like they're just so silent that you can't even tell that them that they're there. Um, but those are different situations than just like the average person, but some people are busy and I have them set alarms on their phone. Otherwise, like, especially like for individuals who are still working from home, who like just sit at their desk all day Mm -hmm. and don't even realize it's four o'clock and they haven't had lunch yet. Like, you know, 
that is when you get like rebound hunger and it kind of catches up on you and you're like, you know, your meal isn't enough because you're starving because you haven't eaten for like six hours. So setting um, some sort of like rough framework just for you to kind of stick to if you're struggling with, you know, not feeling hungry or not being able to determine if you're feeling hungry could be helpful. Mm hmm. I love that idea of setting alarms on the phone. I think that's a good idea. Oh yeah. Super helpful. Um, I started doing that with my, um, eating disorder clients. And then when I fell into the overall disordered eating space, um, where people just come to me and they're like dieting, they don't know what to do. They don't feel right. They know that they can't go on another diet. Um, for some people with like, eating isn't like a main thing for them. Like they'll go whole, the whole day without eating and wonder why they feel like they're binge eating at night or, you know, overeating at night. It's because your body's saying like, Hey, you didn't give me enough energy today. Like I need more energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so setting alarms could be super helpful. hundred percent. Yeah. I love that. And like when it comes to like calorie counting, I think it's so stupid because it's just so inaccurate. Like it just makes no sense. Inaccurate. I mean, we all, we literally all have such unique individual needs that change, not even just daily, but hourly. Yeah. It just makes no sense. So antiquated. And the whole like calories in calories out. I'm just like, no, our bodies are so much more complex than that. It doesn't, even if you wanted it to be that simple, which I think a lot of times within disordered eating, you're looking yeah. for something easy to grab onto. And so I get it. It's so easy to hold on to those messages whenever you're entrenched in it. But I think if you can like, the more you kind of step back and even kind of just like fact check the things you're doing, you're like, oh, this actually doesn't make sense. A hundred percent. And that goes on to this other post that I thought was really cool. You, you in the, in the description, you're like sips my tea as as I post this, which I thought was so funny. And you said, did you know? And then you talked about three different like facts kind of that, like people just take as like the word of God or, you know, whatever higher power you may or may not be worshiping. Um, but you said BMI was made up by a mathematician with no knowledge of the human body 200 years ago. So BMI, I don't know if you want to like, just explain what BMI is and then why it's ridiculous and why we shouldn't be using it as an indicator of health. Yeah. I mean, it was literally made up ages ago by a mathematician and it has somehow trickled its way into our medical system to basically take, what is it? Even your height and age. I haven't used it in so long. I'm like forgetting it's like, what height height and weight. Yeah. Height and weight. Yeah. And determining basically if you are overweight, underweight in a quote normal range, but it's like, it doesn't take into account literally anything else. And it's just so interesting to me because I think it's basically, I think it plays right into this fat phobic message we have of if you were in a small body, you were healthy. And if you were in a larger body, you were unhealthy. And it's just so frustrating because it's like, you know, nothing else about that person. You have looked at them. Correct. And I'm pretty sure that the guy who created it, it was created in like the 1800s and like, it was based off of self-reported data. 
So like the, the white European men who were involved in his like study or whatever, self-reported their like anthropometric. So like their height and their weight. So like this whole thing was based off of self-reported data, which like if we were doing a study in like today's time, like that would never be a gold standard because people would could lie about how tall they are or, you know, how much they weigh. And so like, if you're using a form of measurement for like health purposes or medical purposes, it wouldn't even stand up to like today's like considered, you know, like the gold standard or like what we would consider reliable, a reliable right. data we source. Even, like publish in a scholarly article. Probably. It would never exactly. And it was not intended to be used for like in the medical field, which is another funny thing. And also like when you think about it, like in school, when we took research, I'm sure you've had, you know, I I don't know if like all undergrad classes have some level of research, but they basically talk about how like you can't generalize certain things. So like if you're like doing a study like of like, let's say like white men in Greece, for example, like whatever findings you have cannot be generalized to men everywhere. They could only be generalized to white men in Greece. So even just taking aside the fact that the data may be skewed or incorrect or whatever, like it cannot be generalized to, you know, any other (laughs) human being than a white European male. So it just really makes no sense. It makes no sense. And I mean, I have like vivid memories of learning about BMI in eighth grade. And I'm like, why is this taught in middle school? Like, why? (laughs) It's It's just just so so crazy. And like, even when you look at studies that like, look at certain things, like, like the nurse's health study, which is like a very long study that has looked at like these nurses throughout like time. And they've looked at certain things like heart, like risk for heart disease and all these certain things like BMI, like they use BMI as like, oh, well, individuals with a high, you know, a BMI of, you know, 26 and higher had a greater risk for this, but it's like, but like, what is, what are they eating? Do they smoke? Do they have movement in their life? Like those things are more indicative of health, which kind of goes to like the third point that you make. So I skipped number two, but we'll come back to it. And he said a number on the scale doesn't take into account many important factors of health, including mental health. And that's like the big, like kinds of thing that a lot of people are realizing that if your mental health is not doing well, it can have huge implications on your physical health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so, so, so glad that mental health is being talked about more regularly now. I mean, I go to a therapist once every other week to have my like biweekly check-in. I just think it's so interesting that up until now, you know, it has been kind of this taboo topic of talking about depression and anxiety. And I really started dealing with anxiety again, when I went to college, um, I was very overwhelmed. Um, I turned to alcohol a lot, like partying a lot and Mm. it was 
it was just, I look back and I think, wow, that's a person I feel like I really didn't know. And I turned so much to all of these kind of outlets to sort of like numb whatever it was that I was going through or feeling. And it's like, but you know, people looked at me and well, I was in a smaller body, so I was healthy. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, because you have no idea kind of what is impacting how I actually do feel every day. And so I think that is such a big, important part of like, you can't, the old saying, you cannot judge a book by its cover. And it's like, no, you have no idea what people are feeling. Again, what you said earlier, do they smoke? How, what's their movement like? Um, And I am just so glad that mental health is becoming more of this topic within the wellness space, wellness space. That's a whole nother topic too, but (laughs) whatever we want to call it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've definitely struggled with anxiety and bouts of depression my whole life, but it really, the anxiety got very bad. I would say maybe like three years ago and like, I always felt like, oh no, like I'll get through it. I'll get through it. I'll get through it. But I was experiencing very strong physical symptoms of like chest pain and like pain in my stomach and, you know, things like that. And, you know, I finally said like, okay, like I can't live like this. Like I thought it was normal to live like that. I thought that I was just like, oh, being me, you know, emotional and stressed out and stuff. And like, I started to take medication. I went to my doctor and I was like, I'm feeling this, like, I can't go on like this. Like, I know that this is not normal. And like, you know, it was life changing and it doesn't necessarily take away the anxiety, but for me, it took away the physical symptoms, which were like impeding me from like functioning on a normal basis. So I think it's really important that people take that into account. And also like mental health and stress that we experience can have, an impact like on, for example, like if you are someone who is like pre-diabetic or diabetic or have insulin resistance, it can cause your blood sugars to run higher because of the stress that's going on in your body. So it also has like a physical medical implication as well. Not just like, it's not just about what you eat. It's like so much more than that. Yeah. Well, and I, I really love that you brought in the medicine piece as well, because again, with like going to therapy, which I think is much more normalized now. I do still at times feel like there's this taboo around like, Oh, the medication. And it's like, no, like you do what you have to do to take care of yourself. And if that's what you need, like why there should be no shame in that. And I think that you can also turn to these other outlets, whatever works for you. If it's movement, if it's journaling, if it's meditating, I think there's different things you can definitely incorporate, but I loved that you brought up that medicine piece because Again, I think some people are still like, oh, well, if you're on, you know, medication then, and it's like, no, I'm going to do what I have to do to take care of myself. And it's so funny to me or ironic that people still have this like stigma against medication, but like drinking alcohol is acceptable. Like I personally have never been like someone who enjoyed drinking. Like I can count on one hand how many times I've been drunk in my life. It's just something that isn't my thing. I have my aunt passed away like a year and a half ago and she suffered from alcoholism. So it really like changed my like whole life looking at what alcohol could do to someone, not saying that everyone who drinks becomes an alcoholic, but it was just like something in, I guess, my personal experience. 
So it's like okay to go out and like have a couple of drinks after work to calm down or whatever. But like if you are prescribed a medication and I'm not talking about like, I think, and this is not even related to diet culture, but I think it's important to talk about it. Like I thought that it was going to change me. Like I was going to feel different, but like I saw this quote, I think it was on Instagram and it was like, if you're so worried about like what a medication, like you're like someone's so worried about what the impact of a medication can have, but like you can barely function as is. So it's like, if taking something can make you just like be able to get out of bed and like live your life, you know, I'm not just talking about situations where like, oh, you need to like start doing some yoga. Like I did all those things and I went to a therapist and it, you know, there's just something with me that isn't working the way the average person should. And like, you shouldn't have like constant chest pains and like, you know, side pains and things like that and anxiety attacks every five minutes. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm not ashamed of it, but I think that for a long time I put it off and I wish that I just like did it sooner so that I didn't lose so much time, like being in that place, you know? Yep. I love too, what you said again, I think with this conversation is going a little bit more into like anxiety, but I think that does play into our food and food choices and everything. Yeah. As well. But something you said that stood out to me was like the going to get a couple of drinks. And just if that is something any of your listeners are currently struggling with, I started something last year where at the end of each day, not that I was a big, like my thing with alcohol was very much in college, like going out partying. I don't really keep it at home that much, but I did even notice during the pandemic and things like that, I'd keep some wine or whatever at home. And I would ask myself, like, do you feel like you need a glass? And if it was, the answer was yes. Then I'm like, I'm not having one. I'll have kombucha or something like that. But if it's like, no, I just like want to sip on a glass, which again, I'm like, I hardly like very yeah. like but, oh, it tastes good kind of thing. Right. Or like I want it with my pasta or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but I just think that's like a good kind of check-in to have with yourself. Like, do I feel like that's I need definitely it? A good and point. If the yes, then like why? And let's turn to something else, maybe. No, but. that's a really good point. I mean, I I I didn't I haven't experienced that, but I could imagine. Um, a lot of people and I see online a lot of like that type of behavior by like a lot of like influencers where they're like oh the end of the night like here's my glass of wine and it's like the messaging that people are sending out like oh like you're not gonna have any carbs throughout the day but like it's okay if it's wine or mm-hmm. you know things like that it's just it's it's kind of all over the place and like the way that your body filters out like toxins is the same way that it filters out alcohol. Your body views it as something that it needs to get out of your body. So I always remind that to people like it's not I mean, obviously, like there's many health benefits to like red wine and like the Mediterranean diet. Um, people in like the Mediterranean, like live like longer, healthier lives and like red wine is part of their like dot you know their intake but like we're talking about individuals who are like relying on it to like get through the time or deal with stress that's going on Mm -hmm. it could go down like a not such a good path which is important to acknowledge and so yeah so we talked about that and then the last thing which I actually didn't know myself which I had on my list of things that I wanted to research but the 10,000 steps a day came 
out of Japan and in, in the 1960s. Can you please explain that? Because I have no idea. So the 10,000 thing is like probably like one of the most common things I ever hear from anyone. I literally, I'm not kidding. I see this on Instagram at least once a day. Oh, annoying. I'm posting a story saying, getting my 10K steps in. And I'm like, this was used as a marketing tool for like an object. What? I don't know the, like, I can't even think of the details off the top of my head, but it was for some sort of object and their marketing was like 10K. And so that's where that stemmed from to begin with, but there's no, like, there's no science behind it, that that's how much like humans are supposed to walk or whatever it may be. So that's just another. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think part of like the pandemic situation, oh, it was okay. I'm looking it up. It came from a trade named pedometer sold in 1965 which the name, I guess, however you say it in, in Japanese, which I'm not going to try, actually directly translates to 10,000 steps meter. Yeah. So, so it's not even saying you should walk 10,000 steps a day. It was just like what, however you say pedometer in Japanese, like is translated into that. It. It's so, That's so weird. Oh my goodness. And so like part of the like, annoying things like there's many annoying things there's many things that always annoy me on social media but like you have like a lot of like influencers which I always poop on not not literally but you know what I mean figuratively that they talk about like getting in your 10,000 steps a day and that's like one of the things and then people feel guilty if they don't reach it and like with the apple watch tracking your workouts and then like Peloton the it tells you like how long how many calories you burned I think and how long you um you wrote or something or and it ranks you I feel like it just creates such a toxic culture which like takes away the whole point like obviously walking is good and like you know like if you've ever been to Europe which I haven't been in, in a long time but like we like we would always like walk everywhere and like you know, we can argue how healthy that is for the human body um, and things like that. But like, you don't see people in France saying, did I make my 10,000 steps a day? Like, no, it's just like you walk, like do what you enjoy. And I just think that with the pandemic, like a lot of these things that like are, that should be enjoyable have become like more stressful and like, sets you up for failure so to speak because you're like oh well my friend just posted her peloton ride and she burns 579 calories and I only burned 322 and like I need to do more and she's smaller than me like it it, it creates this like comparison culture kind of thing and yeah. it just feeds into this like a not a real healthy place I was literally about to say, I think it all goes back to this kind of comparison, which is why I think it's so important to really monitor who you're following, what their message is, because regardless of if you think you're absorbing it or not, like you're seeing that message that they are putting out into the universe. And sometimes we subconsciously hold on to these things. And yeah, I think it is really interesting within the pandemic, I think, you know, a lot of people were doing like the 
at home, like, uh, what was it? Like the living room workouts and everything. And God, with the ball of bangles. Fun, but like, I also fell into this, like, oh, um, yeah. like not, should I, you know, not like beating myself up that much, but kind of like, oh, like these people are doing this every day. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and so I think it is really important to monitor, like, who am I following? What are they yeah. saying? If I'm comparing myself to them, like, is it best to just maybe like mute them for a little bit, yeah. come back later or just unfollow? Like if it's that toxic, but yeah, I think just continuing to question too, like mindful movement is something I'm super passionate about. And like, I think my journey has continuously like every day I think I kind of discover even more and more what does mindful movement mean to me lately it's mostly been like going on walks outside with my dog does that mean I don't love like a good fun spin class too no like I do I think that's that's fun for me other people hate it but I think it's really important yeah see it's like I think (laughs) it's important to know that people love it which is fine and people love the bar classes and I'm like that's not my vibe I don't have fun at all when I do that thing and so I just think it's like so important to continuously check in. Like, what are my intentions behind this movement? What am I hoping to get from it? Do I actually feel like doing it today? Do I want to just maybe go on a light walk instead? Do I want to like chill in my bed instead? Like that's okay too. So I think just like the more you can check in with that comparison and your intention Mm -hmm. is so powerful, especially on a journey if you're within kind of a disordered space. Cause I know movement shows up within that for a lot of people. And so just having, being really intentional around it. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's scary because even if you're not following like Jillian Michaels or someone else, that's terrible like that. Like there's a lot (laughs) of, (laughs) um, Oh my goodness. I don't know if you've seen her. Like, was it last year? I don't even know. All the years have blended together. It was like maybe last year, the year before, but she did like a live on Instagram. You could probably go and watch it of like her reading out the 10 main principles of like intuitive eating. And she was like having a heart attack while she read each of them. Not really, God forbid, but I'm just saying like, you can tell how disordered her thinking is and how she clearly is suffering from sort of disordered eating. And, um, but my point was, was that I follow like a lot of like fashion influencers. Cause I love to like look at style, but I see so much eating disorder, disordered eating messaging, and they don't even realize that they're putting out there. So if you have like 500,000 followers following these people because they like their shoes or whatever they're posting or their makeup, but then they're like, Oh, working off that Halloween candy from eating it, you know, ahead of time like while they're doing a dance class, like posting it and writing it, like that's going to put that thought in your head. So even if you're not actively thinking about it, it's like we absorb so much subconsciously, which is like kind of what we were talking about, like people who have been suffering with disordered eating and have been dieting since they were like children. A lot of that messaging is just so enriched in your brain that you don't even notice it. And that is included with what we follow on social media as well. So that, that was such a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. And I think I, I also want to recognize too, like, I think a lot of times people don't realize that's the message they're putting off. And I think if we were to say to them, Hey, do you know that someone could interpret it this way? And I think it can go, I think every message that's put out into the universe can be interpreted in a different way. But I think if you were to say like, do you know that this comes off this way? Some of them might, and some of them might be genuinely shocked of like, 
oh no, I di- didn't think of it that way because yeah. diet culture is so normal. Like it is normal for someone to say, oh, I'm going to go quote, work off this candy. Like yeah. that's more normal to say than for someone to say like, you can have the candy and not feel guilty about it yeah. and not feel like you have to work it off. Like, 100%. I think that, I think, I hope that I, this anti-diet message and this community is growing. And I think people are kind of catching wind of it, I hope, yeah. but I think there's a long way to go. Like it's, yeah. it's tough. For sure. Um, well, Leslie, thank you so much for sitting down with me virtually. Um, Guys, I'm going to leave all of her info down below. Give her a follow. Check out her content. And I hope you'll come back soon and do another episode. Um, I love Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, for sure. And guys, I will see you next week. Thank you for listening and have a great week.